I'm delighted to welcome onto the channel today Rick the Ukrainian. If you haven't seen his materials, I strongly recommend you do. He dubs extraordinary video interviews with Russian POWs into English, and it is incredibly important material to understand the Russian mindset. Uh, and I think when you get into them, you will be extremely shocked actually at some of the things you hear these POWs you're saying about you know their motivations for coming to war or how they came to come to war I mean some of them are uh, just uh, grabbed off the street when they were paralytic or drunk but we'll go through some of the details here before we do please check out the verified Ukrainian charities that are in the video we now announce this with every video we put out these are charities doing incredible work, especially ones like Superhumans, which I was able to visit in Lviv, which is rehabilitating uh, amputees, uh, veteran servicemen who have come back from the front with a loss of limbs. Extraordinary work, which we need to support and has never been more important. But Rick, welcome to the channel. Hello, Jonathan. I'm happy to be here. I've heard a lot of about your work, about your interviews and... Uh... I'm happy to be here today. And uh, I actually have some things to share, uh, not just about interviews, uh, but also about my life experience because I lived in Russian occupation for four and a half years, since 2014 until 2019. And yeah, I know, unfortunately, I have an experience of Russian world, so-called, from the inside and i must say it's a dark and ugly place and you just ask any question about that period i love to talk about that because i think that experience is mostly unknown for people around the world uh because they are getting so surprised every time i, I tell this story <laughs> I, I this is i really want to drill into this because i was an event eve I, I go to lots of events about sort of at least one or two a week. Uh, often they're organized by the Ukrainian Institute in London, um, but also other organizations as one's called Chatham House and others here, and they do some fantastic events. But it's always the case that either someone on the panel or someone in the audience will ask questions which make the Ukrainians in the audience of the panel just sort of tense up and kind of cringe. And of course, one of those questions is very much around Russian propaganda, and unfortunately, it percolates through to our diplomatic and political classes in the West, and that is around negotiation. And when someone poses that question about, well, would it be so bad to stop the war? Would it be so bad to enter into negotiations with Russia? First, of course, that's ignoring the idea that you're not negotiating with someone who is going to commit to any piece of paper they sign up to. But this supposition also ignores what every Ukrainian knows, and that is there are many, many Ukrainians behind the lines who are not sympathetic to the Russian world, who are not yeah. collaborating with it, and are living in a state of terror. So could you talk about that? I mean, where were you, and how did you you know, get in that situation? How did you get out of it? And then we'll talk about the negotiations, because I think this is such a, a critical um thing question to tackle at the moment mm -hmm. i totally agree with you mm -hmm. and uh, okay so there's a background story i was actually born in makivka uh, it's next to donetsk together makivka is a, like a city also almost half a million people live there it is next to donetsk and together they form a huge uh city that is actually bigger than Kiev, and uh, they basically I was living in both of them. So I'm initially from Makivka and Donetsk. This was such a prospering place before 2014, before Russia came there, uh, and I was actually having a lot of uh, potential in my life according to my profession and to work. I started working in some um, pretty good company uh, we were maintaining uh, automatic fire detection and um, firefighting systems uh, some huge uh, good we called them objects uh, well buildings uh, clients like for example there was an aqua park in donetsk a brand new just a year or two years old uh, with super cool systems uh, in it and I was maintain, maintaining that. So it was an interesting job with 
with a huge potential for me to grow as a professional and to become some manager in that company someday. But then then Russian world came there. And um, first, first I fled to uh, the western part of Ukraine for a few months. I started, uh, you know, I, I was hoping to start the life from scratch there, but it didn't work out. And we also had cats uh, left back home. And also, like in Makivka, there was a military action there happening, but not for a long time, just for a week or so. And then it started getting more quiet. We didn't have any shelling in our town. And we uh, came back there. Uh, also, I can say about myself that I wasn't back then a grown-up person. And I couldn't really start uh, to build, build building up my life you know, from scratch without help of my relatives. So I decided to go where it was easier for me and not so depressing being somewhere in the foreign place, you know, foreign, I mean, in still in my country, but I, I knew no one there. I was just, um, you know, I was just a refugee. And we also had some superstitions from locals there who were saying like, hey, you guys from Donbass, you're probably terrorists, right? Uh, and they were saying it to our faces, like kind of joking, but uh, in in every joke, there's part of um, that stupid superstition. So um, I uh, we came back home and we spent the next four and a half years there. Uh, and this was actually terrible, especially first two or three years. It was really hard to live there because... 80% of all businesses there died, completely stopped, uh, they closed. Uh, I would even go up to 90%, but at least 80. I'm not sure about that, but 80% definitely died. And we had no no good places to go. No, uh, of course, coffee shops started opening and uh, some cafes and restaurants, uh, but not much of a shops to go to to buy some clothes or even products uh, even you see the food products uh, they disappeared like good food disappeared it started coming from russia and russia actually provided uh, those so-called republics only with uh, the lowest grade food this was yeah there were really hard times and you could have even couldn't even find some good food and you had to ask your uh, friends and family who were traveling to Ukraine I was actually myself traveling to Ukraine every um, I would say three months at least sometimes every month uh, because actually those days guys uh, a lot of people don't realize but those days uh, from 2014 until 2020 yeah before COVID uh, you could have crossed the front line. You could have crossed uh, that border between the annexed territory and free Ukraine. Uh, but it wasn't a pleasant process. It wasn't a process um, that was going um, smoothly and uh, your basic human rights were oppressed there. You, They could have uh, asked you even to undress or... Uh, they could have uh, just take your phone and started going through your messages. Uh, you, yeah, you basically needed to throw all your stuff from your bag when you were crossing that line. And uh, yeah, so a lot of humiliation, a lot of, um, I would say, uh, bribery, because some sometimes uh, those especially from so-called DPR, they were searching our bags and when they were finding some good food uh, they were um, saying like hey i want a piece of that or piece of that and of course you had to give it to them because you better not confront those guys with the uh, guns you know and of course you couldn't show um, that you have 
Ukrainian position, pro-Ukrainian uh, position, views, uh, you know, worldview. You you had to hide it. Um, I had to delete uh, all my chats with my Ukrainian friends, all of that, just even some little details. Of course, you had to have no photos of you somewhere with close to Ukrainian flag or something like that, or coat of arms. This was all dangerous because if you got caught with that, they could really uh, take you at least to dig trenches. There was actually a very known um, like punishment for, for seeing your pro-Ukrainian position to take you to dig trenches for a few days. So you've been totally turned off uh, out of your life and thrown to some military activity, uh, being practically their slave. Uh, I guess well, it could the, be worse, though. I mean, that yeah, at least you survive that, that process. The least. That, that's the least, yeah. yeah. And you must come uh, under some suspicion as well, because why are you going to Ukraine? And they must have the suspicion when you come back that, did you speak to anyone? You know, are you perhaps an agent of the Ukrainian state at this point? There must be some deep suspicion and paranoia if you're traveling backwards and forwards frequently. I would say it was differently because uh, they were basically making money there. They were trying more like bribe something out of you. Uh, but they understood. They understood that we need to get out to get at least something, some products, some clothes. Uh, and mm, but yeah, there were some units, I would call them some special units. They that were doing some uh, interrogations. Yes, there was that. But uh, only in some cases like like you had Ukrainian flag in your phone. <laughs> I would I would say that. But if you're careful uh, in time, especially if you have your own car, um, and you have experience crossing those borders, it was easier and easier. And in time, especially if you can talk through some, um, I don't know, talk to, uh, your way through, you know, <laughs> I am a person who is easily talking to people and who can easily communicate. This is why it was easy for me to you know, find an answer for every uncomfortable question back then. And I gained experience and it, it wasn't a problem for me since year two or year three. Um, yeah. And I was constantly uh, crossing that border. So maybe you have uh, yeah, something exact to ask. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of, one of the things you've been doing, and I really want to drill into, you know, how your experience has informed this is the uh, intense works. I know it takes a long time to do this. Um, Dubbing the interviews with POWs are done by an extraordinary um, uh, sort of journalist, uh, Zolkin. Um, and he essentially is interviewing uh, POWs to try and find their motivations for why they came to war and to an extent to decide what happens to them next. Uh, you know, should they be repatriated? Um, are they a risk? Are they not? But out of these recorded interviews, you get an extraordinary insight into the Russian mindset and the varied uh, motivations of people, it is, I have to say, quite disturbing. So how did you get into it? Um, and what is your overall impression of the importance of this work? And what does it reveal about the Russian mindset? I know that's, you could probably talk for the next two hours about those subjects, yeah. but this is, <laughs> this is incredibly fascinating stuff. Okay, so I, I came to this thought, um, it was summer 2022. I was trying to find how can I be useful to my country in terms of fighting Russian propaganda or helping the army or something, something like that. I was already streaming back then with my friend Jeff from Canada, but those streams weren't visited by many people. I was unknown. You, okay, you have to work hard to get through uh, the algorithms and to really be seen on YouTube. So uh, while we were doing that every week, once a week, uh, I thought, I mean, I started listening to Zolkin's content um, during the summer 2022. And I, I really was fascinated by those conversations. Uh, I was obsessed of lis uh, listening to them. Like I could have listened three to five interviews per day or even more sometimes. And 
I was fascinated um, how displaying they are, uh, that you can really listen to them and understand a lot about Russians. And I, I checked if Zolkin had English subtitles and they, they sucked because they are auto translation <laughs> subtitles from YouTube and they really don't, um, I would say 40% of um, the meaning is definitely lost, maybe even 50 sometimes, especially considering uh, those um, slang words, con military context, you know, all of that. So this wasn't uh, really working and people were uh, people in the comments were saying that please do something better than this <laughs> and i i had an experience of editing but never was voice over in something but i i thought why not try i have a mic i can do it uh, so uh, i started doing this in october uh, when first massive missile attacks from russia started happening here in Kiev, uh, they started massively attacking us and we were losing electricity. Uh, there were blackouts every day. We had a few times um, power outages. Uh, yeah, a few times per day, like two or three times per day, we had no electricity for four hours. And it was really hard to work on that uh, when you have no electricity. Even though I have laptop, um, I couldn't really uh, use it on full so it took me two and a half months to uh, translate and dub the first interview though it was only 35 or 36 minutes long i still was dedicated and i finished it uh, posted it on 5th probably of january last year uh, 2023 and the feedback was enormous i yeah in in just a month it was around half a million views People were really eager to get more. In the comments, they were saying, more, do more. <laughs> we are so grateful to you. It is uh, really bringing the meaning to a lot of what they're saying. Before that, we didn't have that. And um, I decided that I should do more, especially I, I mean, I, I've seen that it, it is going to be a valuable content, but People's feedback really gave me more inspiration and motivation to continue. Uh, I did the second one. It all also had an enormous amount of views. Um, and I really am still dedicated to continue this work and actually speed up on this work because um, dubbing is not the only thing I'm doing on my channel. Uh, like, I think the main focus right now is fundraising for the Ukrainian army. Uh, I take a lot of requests from soldiers and my community. Uh, we actually uh, call uh, ourselves Rick Rollers. Uh, Dick Dawson once gave us that name. <laughs> so members of my community, Rick Rollers, they do a tremendous job in supporting the armed forces through my fundraisers. They are raising thousands of dollars every week and I am fascinated how it is growing, how more and more people are joining in and uh, they want to support, they want to donate. Sometimes I start multiple fundraisers at the same time thinking, Rick, you will exhaust people with your fundraisers. Please don't do that much. And people come and they close all of them, sometimes in just one stream. I am fascinated and thank you rollers all rollers who's going to be watching this interview <laughs> i thank you for your huge support and uh you see right now fundraising is taking so much time everything should be organized and handled uh then oh handed over yes not handled uh so a lot of work there uh all of that also we do auctions and raffles right now some nice stuff like this motanka for example a ukrainian doll uh, handmade which is pretty mm, good looking and people really That's want really these nice. things yeah, from right. Ukraine. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Now I saw, uh, I met up with some um, NAFO, another organization, which is actually quite good at the, the fundraising, of course, is NAFO. And um, went to an event yesterday, but met up with a whole bunch of NAFO uh, fellas in London. They bought their flags and all the stuff. And uh, 
one of them had a very rare thing, which was an Azov, um, sort of really nicely machine kind of Azov uh, regiment uh, sort of uh, stuff. And of course, he knows if he knows there's going to be uh, Vatniks around or, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, if they're going to go and troll the Russian embassy, he makes sure he's wearing this big kind of Azov brooch just to really upset them. Um, mm -hmm. That That's incredibly important, isn't it? You know, doing fundraising, connecting people, not just consuming information. And I think this is important about the videos we're producing. It's it's great if people are just watching it and informing themselves. But actually, the real point is to encourage people to take some kind of action to to look at these and mm -hmm. and say, OK, well, it's no good just bemoaning the state of the world. <clears throat> Let's be more Ukrainian and see what we can do to resolve the problems. Now, where does it fit in in this understanding of the Russian mindset? What benefit do you think it really provides here? Is it just sort of understanding the mind of your enemy so you can strategize better? Or is there something a lot more here? Does it help with Ukrainian resilience to understand, you know, the 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 motivations and actually the sort of often propagandistic and mythologized reasons why these POWs uh, came to Ukraine in the first place to a foreign country to to kill people and earn money from it, essentially. Yeah. So one of the I think it's a top motivation for them. Money. Money is the top motivation for most Russians. I would say 70 to 80 percent are coming here just for money. Uh, the rest are coming to because they are brainwashed by propaganda, but mm, they are most like most of them brainwashed by Russian propaganda. Uh, though uh, those Russians um, are also being motivated by their Minister of Defense with some good money. And of course, uh, they see uh, also, of course, uh, Russian Ministry of Defense is promising them that they're going to be in the rear, they're not going to be on the front line. In each and every interview, we hear those stories. All is based on lies. Uh, they are just continuing to uh, deceive their people and their people really don't know what they are signing for. And this is not an excuse anyway. Uh, they want some easy money. They're coming uh, to Ukraine, uh, even in the rear of Ukraine on the occupied territories. They're still coming to Ukraine. They're still uh, a part of uh, Russian troops and they bear all like full responsibility for their actions. Uh, and it's actually a good irony that uh, wanting those easy money, they're being thrown into the meat grinder of the front line. So uh, that's what you get for uh, wanting some easy bloody money. You get, you. so this is probably, that's the first time I, I think about it. Maybe their minister of defense really want to, provide this irony to them you see like <laughs> to show them <laughs> how this world works but uh well th this mm, doesn't make it easier for us uh you see yeah, i mean we were brought up on yeah. on prisoner of war films like uh, the second world war and uh some of it you know may well be exaggerated but your classic prisoner of war film in britain is that you know the british prisoner of war are trying to uphold order, law, and, you know, the values of their society. Sometimes that means class values, and that creates quite a bit of drama. But essentially, the, the core part of British POW mythology is that everyone is trying to escape. They're trying to cause as much chaos for the Germans as possible by escaping, and they're trying to get back to the front so they can renew the fight. Because Britain, Fundamentally, I think most people in, in Britain, when they were fighting the Second War, believed they were fighting a malign and evil force, and they were fighting for the right to freedom of expression, freedom of belief, and all these kind of things. And I think this is broadly true. With the Russian POWs, if money is the motivation, is it also true to say that none of them are particularly keen to get back in the fight? Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. And you know what, um, the thing with Russians is that, first of all, they, even, even those who don't 
actually know anything and they are not interested in politics, all of them are deeply imperialistic. What do I mean by that? I mean that they don't, most of them don't even understand that Ukraine is a sovereign country. They think that Ukraine is their territory. Right. And sometimes they even sometimes they confuse uh, numbers. They they start saying it to us without plus seven code, uh, not to us but to Zolkin. You see, and Zolkin is pointing that out lately. He's saying, "Dudes, you you are not really uh, in Russia anymore, and you still don't get it. You're in captivity, and you still and yeah, a lot of them are are throwing like this. We're one." people you know one uh, folk we are brothers and we gotta live together so they like each almost each russian i would say 95 to 99 percent of them uh, want soviet union to be restored and they not even want it they don't see any other picture of the world they don't uh, see any other picture of us coexisting it is sitting so deep in them uh, since Soviet Union, they haven't separated at all because they still live, live in that empire, which is just uh, haven't fallen apart fully, completely. It is still, um, it still holds a lot of occupied territories in it. And I think that's probably, uh, probably the key to their imperialistic behavior because they never uh, actually switched to something else. They keep living in the Soviet Union. They keep uh, being, uh, well, it's not that easy for them because uh, not everything is done for them as in the Soviet Union, uh, much harder for them because they uh, now also need to have responsibility for their own lives. And that breaks uh, all of them from the inside and especially older generations because they used to something else and now they need to take initiative and do something for themselves. Well, that is hard for them. So uh, another thing I wanted to point out about prisoners of war, that uh, even those who are anti-Putin, they end up in Ukrainian captivity. They are being thrown to the army. Um, you see, in Russia, protest is possible we see some some russians there are fighting uh, their regime with weapons uh, in their hands like a russian voluntary corps or a legion freedom of russia and that's the only way to fight that regime uh, and a lot of russians are naive just thinking that they will go on the protest uh, with a piece of paper and they will I don't know what what will happen. They see how they're being packed and then raped and killed in prisons. Uh, yeah, by the way, Navalny is dead today. Uh, just you see, this naivety is even um, in in this man. Uh, he was one of the top politicians in the country. Yet he was. What was he thinking? He, did he really uh, want? To commit suicide and become a martyr was it his goal really um well then he is i don't know <laughs> he's not jesus definitely <laughs> i mean this but, is what i said in 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 a video put out this evening he went from being um genuinely quite an interesting character quite a unique character in the fact that he was willing to speak out and take risk and he was quite inventive in some of the strategies he used that's not to say he didn't have some of the sort of racist imperial tropes we know from some yeah. of his associations he absolutely did and of course Crimea isn't be, a sandwich. this is why we don't like yeah um, ukrainians yeah and you, you, you know crimea isn't a sandwich uh etc etc um but he was still very innovative and creative and he had a huge energy, which unfortunately many in his team don't don't actually have. So what was the thinking there? He turned himself into a hostage and then mm -hmm. he became a martyr. I mean, that might appeal to Russians' sense of suffering and trauma and nihilism, yeah. but it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't achieve yes. anything, unfortunately. Exactly. So their fight 
is not the fight that can be efficient. Their fight is bringing them only to more suffering, to, hmm, I'm not sure if that word exists, but martyrism, <laughs> or what, what's the word? Jonathan? It's martyrdom. Yeah, martyrdom. it's a bit of an irregular word, martyrdom, yeah. Never heard of it. Uh, but yeah, so that that's what it brings uh, them to. Uh, they They just so inefficient in that resistance. And you see, when people are saying that Russians uh, who fled Russia, uh, they are not responsible for the crimes of Putin, uh, I usually disagree with that because uh, we actually shown them an example of a proper fight in 2014, we Ukrainians. And they could have followed this path, but instead of that, they have broken and they uh, left their their country. So I think this. Um, okay, I think I lost uh, the end of this thought. Thought <laughs> so I give you the Belarus. Mark. I mean, Belarus gives them a good example as well. Even though that failed um, yeah. in Belarus, there was a huge uh, civic protest, and the, of course, the scale of violence that it was met with uh, was 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 oh, extreme. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of expecting, actually, I was expecting the valley to try and engineer something similar in Russia. And it would have been met with the same violence, but it would have been something. Um, no, there is there is none of that. And uh, I, there's the various you know reasons for that. But to relate that back, relate this sort of um, this sort of nihilism, fatalism that we see in politics. Let's relate that back to the POWs. Do you see those same characteristics? Even though there are people who are anti-regime, they've ended up on the front. They've, in some ways, let themselves become victims of this. And I know going to a Russian prison is not the easy option here, but your chances of survival are perhaps slightly higher in a Russian prison, even though it's unpleasant, exceedingly unpleasant, um, than, than actually, actually being sent to the front. But do you detect in the interviews a sense of kind of fatalism? You know, this is our fate. I don't agree with it, but what can I do? I mean, what, what kind of narratives yeah. come through? Constantly. Constantly they are mostly not uh, the masters of their own fate, and they try to give responsibility to anyone else. Uh, politicians know better than I do. Uh, I... Um, a small person, all of that. So let's take the case of a, um, of a really, um, I would say, exemplary. No, okay. So the guy was, <laughs> uh, this was there was a guy on uh, Zolkin or Karpenka's interview. I don't remember. Karpenka, by the way, is uh, the partner of Zolkin, and he does uh, most of of interviews now these days with prisoners of war. Uh, so. They were there was a guy who was studying uh, on in one of the biggest universities in Moscow. I don't remember the name, but uh, he was studying journalism there, and he was going on protests uh, against Putin on the first days of full scale invasion. He was um, openly uh, criticizing his government, uh, and then then there <laughs> actually how do you call them? superiors in the university, uh, not, yeah, I would say uh, the administration of the university started um, pushing him uh, to leave the university and go to the army. And one day they, they've just brought some uh, draft board officers. Uh, those guys grabbed him and he actually had a choice. He could have gone uh, out, who could have get out, but, uh, you know, they always scare them with uh, prison. And they also think that from prison, there's only way uh, also to war. Uh, because often they make conditions in prisons, like 90% of the time, they make conditions just unbearable. And those prisoners, they want to get out in any, like to take any chances. Because dying in Russian prison is so easy. Uh, tortures constantly happening, bad food, um, no good health care. Uh, and I'm hearing so crazy stories, such crazy stories uh, from prisoners, especially lately. Like yesterday or the day before yesterday, I was listening to one of the latest interviews and uh, prison, yeah, 
one one of the prisoners was saying that he was sitting in the single uh, person cell. How do you call those cells? Um, That's like an isolation cell or a solitary confinement. Yes, some kind of that solitary confinement cell. Uh, he was sitting there for 135 days uh, just because they wanted to break him uh, for him to start working. Um, because this is actually the way to exploit those people. Uh, they not just put them in prison, they use them as a working force. And uh, he didn't break anyway uh, because the head of the prison changed uh, for another person. And uh, this is why he had to sit there even more, but they cut him out anyway. Um, and he was respected by his uh, prisoner friends after that. Well, not friends, fellow prisoners, yes. He was respected by them after that. But that, that dude, yeah. So getting back to the dude who was a student, uh, and he was a student of the last uh, grade. Do you call it grade, probably? Um, so he was the student of the last grade of that university. They have sent them, him to war. He was actually, oh my God, he was involved in military action for 10 months or even a year. Uh, that dude spent a lot of time there on the front line. And he even was getting back home. And he didn't escape. He had a chance, unusual, chance to escape. I mean, they don't yeah. let all the troops home. A lot are kept in the LNR and DNR and not actually let back to the home yes. front, except the convicts. They let the convicts back to go and murder and rob yeah. people, but not the uh, Morbiki. <laughs> this is their way, yeah. Uh, so he even got back home uh, for vacation. He spent two weeks at home and he came back. And you see, in a lot of those uh, prisoners of war i see that they really like this they really like this war they really like this way of conquering other nations even though they maybe don't like conditions or they don't agree with their regime regime doesn't even have to break them that much because deep down uh, they they see that we are one nation or something like that and that it is normal to just invade uh, some, like, as they think, their territory, you see? Uh, like, it's a part of Soviet Union anyway. Well, we, we're at home there. That's their thoughts. And even those who are anti-Putin, they still have it in them. And they go and fight uh, for Putin. And they and in the end of that interview, Karpenko asked him, would you have done the same again and that dude came to the conclusion that he would have come here again that's insane isn't it and this really touches upon another very powerful very potent um propaganda narrative and unfortunately this is one that some people in the west as well don't stop to think about and that is that the basis of the russian world is that you speak russian and somehow speaking russian makes you Russian. Well, I'm presuming mm -hmm. that your first language would have potentially been been Russian when you're growing up in 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 the East. Um, do yeah. these interviews really emphasize for you that 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 actually language is is not the defining feature here, um, and that you know the mindset of you and and the fr your friends who think like you is utterly different despite perhaps having, you know, uh, language in common with these POWs. Yeah, I'm a native uh, Russian speaker. Yeah, this is my first language. I was actually keep talking uh, this language uh, until 2022. And I never thought a problem, uh, seen a problem. I've never seen a problem in this. Um, I actually didn't realize how important it is to be the carrier of your native language uh, or at some point that language might just may just disappear as they kill some languages in Russia with their Russian language and they actually did unfortunately they were working on this uh, in 90s and uh, 2000s and 2010 
Russia was constantly working to erase Ukrainian language too. Soviet Union was working on it. And uh, we really got to... I mean, every Ukrainian should come to this themselves. Uh, you should not force a Ukrainian to, to speak Ukrainian if they don't want to. If they want to keep speaking Russian, let them be. Uh, at some point, they will realize. If they won't, then, well, uh, then that's on them. Uh, and you see, uh, language is is not the problem in here, uh, definitely. But it is also at the same time a problem because this is the instrument of Russian genocide. Uh, and to realize that you really have to see how Russia was implementing it. Uh, first Russian empire, then Soviet Union, now Russia. They, uh, they kept erasing other languages with their language. Uh, and only when you realize why you should speak Ukrainian only uh, and just, just be a carrier of your language, just yourself. Don't force anyone else to do it. Just give an example. And you, you see, uh, we, we still tolerate, we Ukrainian speakers, we still to tolerate Russian speakers. So that narrative, Russian propaganda narrative about that we oppress Russian language here is uh, ridiculous. And I, I would admit uh, that Ukrainians of Western part of Ukraine, they usually were asking uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainians or Russians, whatever, to speak Ukrainian to them. Uh, that's because mm, I think most of them realized at that time uh, why we should speak Ukrainians. I realized it only in 2022, um, though I was lucky to, uh, to learn Ukrainian in school. And I had um, an amazing teacher and not just one, uh, many teachers from Western parts of Ukraine who were actually transferring to Donetsk to teach us Ukrainian language, Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian history. And I was taught all of that. And I have seen how uh, we were conquered back then. And I already had some understanding of what Russian empire is, which is still an empire. Uh, and I was, I was lucky to love Ukrainian from my childhood, and I easily have spoken Ukrainian. And even in 2014, when I was traveling to Western parts of Ukraine, I was speaking Ukrainian. And then people were asking me, where are you from? I was saying Donetsk. And they were, what? I thought you're from Lviv Oblast. Uh, your Ukrainian is awesome. Uh, how do you? Uh, and I would always say to people, Donetsk is Ukraine. And we speak Ukrainian language there too. Because that's that's a Russian narrative that there are Russian people living there. No, actually, Ukrainian people are living in Russia. Belhart region, Kuban, you know, all those um, regions. And even green Ukraine and Vladivostok, they also speak Ukrainian. And a lot of Ukrainians live there. And I, I was so uh, happy when Zelensky uh, made that law to... Um, recognize uh, Ukrainian uh, people in Russia and their rights. This was a good move and it gives us some good perspectives. That's Can some, that's some extraordinary kind of, uh, not satire, but there's something there which is really having a dig, I think, at, uh, at Russians and the, the mythology there. There's also the diaspora. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, comparing the Russian diaspora. And of course, there's multiple generations of Russians who are abroad waves and waves have left you know decade after decade and there's different character of of the russian diaspora but what they have in common is a tendency not to group together a tendency not to coalesce mm -hmm. and uh you know the culture becomes a little ossified as it were and and they may you know repeat some of the culture that their generation followed but you don't seem to get too much mingling between the the generations it strikes me that the Ukrainian diaspora is different. You have people who left during the height of the Soviet Union. You had 
those who left after the Holodomor, but they seem to have mm -hmm. kept uh, traditions alive. And in fact, generation after generation, it becomes even more fierce and protective of those. Um, but at the same time, they still feel a connection to Ukraine and uh, the current generation of people there. How do you explain that? Because the whole Soviet system was designed to destroy cultural bonds, destroy political bonds, destroy cooperation. How the hell has, you know, Ukraine identity survived through all that? I'm so happy that you asked me this question because, uh, man, I was answering this question, but I don't have like a, a good answer for that. But I see that we, Ukrainian nation, we have some superpower of preserving that national identity through anything, through massive genocide, through millions of dead people, through language genocide, through uh, oh, oppression, through erasing our identity, we still still have that ability. I don't I don't know where it comes from, but we have that. That's a superpower. Let's call it super, Ukrainian superpower of uh, preser preserving identity. <laughs> I would have called it that way. <laughs> I think someone uh, in the Canadian diaspora, uh, actually, she's she dubbed the um, what dubbed she translated the film Twenty Days in Mariupol, um, mm -hmm. and helped compile that. So that's a fantastic piece of work. Oh, I think yeah. she described it as extreme stubbornness, <laughs> a Ukrainian characteristic, stubborn and refusing to uh, refusing to accept authority unless that authority in some way represents your interests. Um, is this a defining feature of Ukrainians versus Russians? And do you see this in the POWs, their acquiescence to authority, even if they disagree with what that authority is telling them to do, do you see any resistance at all to authority or do you see complete submission to authority there? I don't see any resistance. This is why we still don't have any decent protests in Russia. Uh, where was it not so long ago, like a month ago uh, in Kalmykia or somewhere? Bashkortostan, I think. Ah, Bashkortostan. Yeah, they had some protests, but they were... Um, I forgot the word for that. They were... Um, Oppressed, uh, suppressed. Yeah, they were suppressed. suppressed. Quickly, yeah. In, in this case, not oppressed. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. In you know, in our coat of arms, we have word will, vola, which is actually it, it has two meanings. It's will and freedom. It's it's one word in Ukrainian. So, for us, will and freedom, it, it is in our trzub, in our coat of arms. Uh, this is something basic for us. So yes, uh, what you've just said about um, our stubbornness and uh, that will that sits in us, I think that's the key to our um, yeah to preserving our national identity. And Russians instead, uh, why we call them slaves? Why uh, Zolkin and Karpenko are calling them slaves almost in every interview? Uh, because they like it when they are being ruled. They don't like the opposite way um, because, well, it goes back in history in centuries. Um, they've been living in, a, in an empire until 1970, 17, sorry. <laughs> and then uh, they've become Soviet Union, which is basically also an, an empire, an unusual one that was trying to seem communism. Uh, but they failed and fooled also <laughs> some of other countries by that. But that empire uh, was also never given them any will. It was doing everything for them. It was providing them with homes, with food, with clothes. And that's it. You got to receive basic needs from us. And you don't need to develop higher than that because then you will become dangerous. And then you may have may want to take power into your hands. There should be no elites besides uh, Russian communist elite, elites. They should be uh, there should be only one elite there. Uh, and you see, those people uh, have practically the same in Russia, uh, especially regions. Uh, when you take some national region, 
like for example, uh, Dagestan uh, or uh, Chechnya uh, or Ichkeria, I should call it that way. So they live basically live on dotations as they call them. Uh, that's uh, financing from Moscow, from the federal government. So uh, they practically don't have uh, their self-financing. This is also, um, you see, also a part of that giving uh, something to people instead of um, motivate them to provide something for themselves. Uh, that's, I think that's the, how it transformed in Russia these days. It's interesting because talking about running this channel and showing it to Ukrainians and, and, and approaching Ukrainians and asking if they'd like to be part of it, what has stunned me is that almost every single Ukrainian I get in contact with, doesn't matter if they're a YouTuber, an academic, a politician, almost all of them will say, yeah, no, this is good. They'll immediately understand that there's no self-interest in doing the collaboration, but there may be some benefit. They may not be able to define the benefit, but they immediately see there's some kind of benefit outside of themselves. They may further see that it's, you know, providing agency to Ukrainians and helping to amplify other speakers. So some will even get, you know, uh, what what it's all about beyond that. But it's almost instant and almost everybody says yes, eventually. Um, well, most of them very quickly. Um, and that's that's what amazed me. I mean, people say, how on earth do you produce all these videos? Well, actually, it's 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 not that difficult because people are extraordinarily generous if you're able to connect them very quickly and explain why it's important. Um, I have reached out extensively to the so-called Russian opposition. I have done the same that I've done with Ukrainians, but you will only see a handful of Russians on the channel. Uh, mm -hmm. And all of them are deep anti-imperialists. And they're very unusual. I mean, you can count them on the fingers of two hands, and that's out of a country of 40-odd million people. So that's, and, and there are a few more out there. So I'm not going to write everybody off. And the Russians appear on the channel are often extraordinarily interesting voices with a real perspective to shed light on, you know, um, not just the Russian mentality, but Russian history and so on. But I would have to say the majority of the Russian opposition I've reached out to never answer the communication. And those that do will say, yeah, okay, maybe we'll do something. And then they never get back to you. So it's a completely kind of different dynamic there. And I don't think it's down to, uh, you know, Russian culture being a little more chaotic or whatever. I think it's really down to an immediate calculation. They're like, this isn't my audience. There's no benefit here. What's the benefit to me? I don't quite get it. It's not. And, you know, there might be some paranoia about appearing in front of an English language audience and maybe getting into some kind of more trouble than they're currently in. So maybe there's a little bit of that. But generally, I think the calculation is, yeah, that's not going to benefit me. So, mm -hmm. yeah, not going to do it. Um, I have to say that most Western politicians, historians, academics, very much behave like Ukrainians in this sense, in that almost all of them connect immediately and say yes. And nobody asks for money. Nobody. Well, actually, there's been one. One historian, yeah. I won't mention who it is, but you know, for me, he was like, okay, that's that tells me everything I need to know about you if you ask money. Um, but uh, nobody out of the hundreds and hundreds of people I've approached, no one has, has asked for a contract or money or anything. They've immediately seen where this fits in, you know, with their values and with the propagation of values that we have in common. Yeah, and that shows us as. Uh, part of western world and not of russian world we have that will we have that um, understanding i think also of something of not just hmm. i was thinking about uh, me doing uh, collaborations and i actually do these fundraisers and i i see and i i actually have never even, mm, I didn't need to prove it to myself. I know, I always known that only in unity, only in building the networking, uh, only in that uh, you can succeed, only being together with people, 
only meeting new people, only speaking uh, with them without any uh, thoughts of, you know, of that self-interest that you're talking about when you're, you're talking about Russians. Um, we are here together standing for Ukraine uh, in our own way. Uh, I'm sure that you're also uh, standing for Ukraine with your um, activity, with your channel. I see it. Uh, and thank you for your work very much, Jonathan, uh, because bringing our voices out there is is very needed and important, considering especially how good Russian propaganda is still after two years. And you see, they even managed to drive us from us and that's that that might be a catastrophe soon on the front lines because of that uh we'll talk about that on the stream uh, this sunday uh we're doing that on the stream this sunday and it's interesting yeah. that we talk about money and personal incentive i think that plays a big role in how russian propaganda cuts through but it also falsely talks to certain values but we'll, we'll kind of un, un, unpack that on sunday i mean the last question i wanted to ask here was around NAFO. And we see a lot of people in these sort of decentralized, uh, I call them organizations, but NAFO isn't really an organization. It's decentralized people who share common values, even if they don't share the same tone and methods of how they do things. How important is it that, you know, we're becoming more Ukrainian and learning from Ukrainian civic society and, and this kind of decentralized problem solving um, and how important is NAFO in connecting the front line with Ukrainians with fundraisers abroad but also pushing back against uh, propaganda and creating this shared a common space of of values well uh, the first year of this war NAFO was just a an unbreakable force and no one could have um, done anything with, with them, with us. I'm also part of NAFO and a part of 69 Sniffer Brigade uh, in the NAFO community. And um, me together with Rollers, we have already raced for three NAFO trucks and starting the new campaign soon. Uh, really proud to be part of that movement. So, so cool. And you see NAFO, was unfortunately losing ground uh, in this war with Russian propaganda when Elon Musk bought, uh, Elon Muscovite, I like to call him. Uh, he bought Twitter and he completely have broken um, the impact of this resistance. He have never broken the resistance itself. It is still going, uh, still that strong, but he started silencing us he started uh, hiding our posts. He started promoting posts of uh, Russian propaganda, of uh, mega propaganda. All of that is unfortunately um, reducing impact of NAFO significantly, yeah. but not in fundraising. Fundraising is still strong and NAFO second, um, and I, I think it's even the first uh, thing that NAFO was always doing is fundraising because to become a fella you gotta donate and people even after becoming fellas they entered uh, that constant process of fundraising for the Ukrainian army and they kept uh, donating and this is amazing and this uh, work uh, still lives and Elon Musk won't, won't be able to kill it Never. <laughs> I really sincerely hope not. And and uh, I know a lot of people are trying to find their way around the algorithms and find other ways to get this material out. That includes the amazing work that you're doing. Rick, it's been such a huge pleasure to have you on the channel. I definitely would love to repeat this again. But of course, we will be repeating it tomorrow on your channel. We're going to be doing the live stream tomorrow, tomorrow Sunday. afternoon. Sunday. It's Sorry, not tomorrow. It's Sunday afternoon. Tomorrow. That's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very so much 8, 8 30 p.m uh, i started 7 30 guys if you're interested if this video will uh come on your channel before the stream then uh, you can come to the stream on sunday at 7 30 and jonathan will be joining at 8 30 uh that's yeah, wow. how it 
I'll put this one out tomorrow, which for people watching it is already Saturday. So, you know, it'll provide a little teaser awesome. for, uh, for the session that we're going to do. But this has been Thank brilliant. And uh, yeah, very much look forward to that as well. And people really need to see your material. It's so incredibly insightful and important. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I was happy to have this amazing conversation. You're a very good and interlocutor. Uh, it, it was very pleasant. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. Дякую, слава Україні. Героям слава.